All right, if you would, let's uh, get into God's word together. If you would, turn to um, Galatians uh, chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Um, last week, we began looking at this theme that we see in the Bible of being adopted by God. What does it mean that we're adopted by God? What is adoption by God? We began looking at that last week. We're going to look at it some more right now in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look at it again uh, next week and kind of try to wrap it up. There is far more uh, that could be said about being adopted by God, but I hope that these truths and the scriptures are um, land as sweetly on your heart as they do mine that they are as healing to your heart as they have been um, for, for mine. Uh, whether you have kids or not, married or not, uh, have kids or not, you know that one of the, the first words uh, that babies uh, speak is dada, right? One of the first things they can say, it's real easy to say. I remember, I think our pediatrician said, you know, was assuring my wife, yeah, the, the first word might be dada, but that's just because it's kind of easy, okay? You know, they would say mama first if they could, but dada's easy. Um, it's one of the first words uh, that babies say and learn to say dada, and they say it with such affection and trust and dependency, and it's so sweet, right? It's so sweet, especially as a dad of three, to hear my kids dada. This morning, I was laying in bed, and my wife went and got our youngest out of bed, and my, my eyes were hardly open, but I, I faintly heard them walk in the room, and I didn't know she had my youngest, who's about a year and a half years old, and I just hear, Daddy! Like, he was so surprised that, oh, there's Daddy in the room, you know? Um, and it's just so awesome and so sweet, right? And I know to cherish these times because I've heard from parents of older kids that very quickly, and I've seen it, I've got three and a half year olds or so, I've seen it in them already very quickly. They move from that Daddy stage, that I totally trust you, I totally love you, I'm totally dependent on you. Very quickly they move into the realm of skepticism, don't they? Like, do you love me? You know, if, if, if you would withhold Skittles from me and cookies at breakfast, what else would you withhold? You know, what else? You know, do you really love me if I can't have donuts every single morning and at every snack time and lunch and dinner? Do you really, very quickly kids move into that, that skepticism. Do you really love me? Do you really care for me? And then dads, moms, you know, we basically spend the rest of our lives trying to earn that trust, trying to explain, no, the reason I'm not giving you Skittles for breakfast is because I love you. It's because I care for you, right? We spend all of our time trying to convince our little toddlers into the teenage years, into adulthood, you can trust me. I love you, right? Battling that skepticism that's, in, that's so ingrained. Um, we're trying to get back to that, that daddy stage, you know, forever remembering, oh, how sweet was it, you know, when Cole would come in and just with such love and dependence and trust say, daddy, oh, daddy's here, right? We're always trying to get back to that era and that stage with our, with our kids. And how much more, those of you who have adopted kids, how much more do you know this, that, that, um, Man, just because an adopted child is legally adopted, you know, legally, you are their dad or you are their mom, 
man, the hard work begins trying to convince them of that, trying to convince them. It's not just that you're legally mine. Like, I want you to be mine. You're totally welcome. You're totally loved. You're totally my son or you're totally my daughter. And I am fighting daily to press that deep into your heart so that you know it and you experience it and you live it out. You know, not just that a judge said, uh, legally, you're my son, but, but you experience it. You understand what it feels like uh, and to palpably, palpably be able to sense that, that this is my father, this is my um, mother. Uh, we, with God, we're, we're the same way. With God, we are born natural skeptics of God, skeptics of his love. Just it's normal and it's natural to us to think that or believe that God is distant cold, doesn't really care for us, or has moments where he does, but by and large, I'm just trying to get his attention, you know? If I could just get his attention, if I could just earn his care for a second, if I could just get him to love me for a moment, we're just natural-born skeptics. This was the lie in the Garden of Eden. Uh, If you go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, you see that we're created, and then very quickly, Satan enters the picture and then starts lying about God, and essentially, he's saying, does he really love you? Does he really care for you? Is he really a good father over you? And that lie has been echoing in our hearts ever since. Ever since that lie has been echoing, does he really care for me? Can I really trust him? We're just born natural uh, skeptics. It's normal to us. And this is the lie this, that echoes around in our hearts and your heart even today. This is the lie that Galatians 4 takes head on with good news. And I promise you the good news is so good that it might be borderline uncomfortable. So if you would, feel free to stand with me as we uh, read and hear from God's word. Again, we're looking at Galatians uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through Galatians 4 in these verses. I pray that you would drive home deep into our very being the good news of Jesus Christ, and the good news of adoption in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you noticed in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, he starts out like this, but when the fullness of time had come, and immediately you know, okay, this is like, I don't have the full context here. What do you mean when the fullness of time had come? It sounds like we've been waiting for something that's now here, but we haven't talked about, Colin hasn't explained what we've been waiting for or what the period of waiting was like. And so let me just give you the background real quick. Galatians, written to the church in Galatia, they had begun uh, being told um, a lie. And they began flirting with a lie. And the lie was that um, they can and should live under the law and perform the law in order to secure God's love and acceptance and to be assured of God's love 
and acceptance. And so Paul begins Galatians in a very unique way, saying that he's astonished at them. He's astonished at the church in Galatia, that they are um, abandoning God, turning their backs on God. And again, the idea that they began flirting with, at least, and embracing was that um, if they just obey at least some aspects of God's love, they will secure full and final acceptance with God. And so Paul begins explaining the whole point of the law. They are turning back to the law to find acceptance with God. And so Paul in Galatians here has begun saying, whoa, 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 we need to step back and I I need to explain the law to you. Like we need to square away what the law is and the whole point of the law and the whole point of really for you and me to be able to think about it easily, the Old Testament, like everything before Jesus, before the fullness of time, what was all of that? about essentially what was going on and then let's see if you want to go back to it okay so that's what Paul is doing so why was the law given why was the law ever given in the first place Paul uses a couple illustrations and one of them he uses is uh, he says that the law was like a guardian like a guardian not not a father over his free adult child, but like a garden, a guardian over a little child who needs to be micromanaged, make sure they eat their breakfast, make sure they pack their lunch, get them to school, right? Take care of them, keep them safe, make sure they don't end up in prison, and then help them get to that place of finally being somewhat of a responsible adult. So Paul compares the law to that. Look at verse one. He, sa- he says that, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In other words, he's a child. He has this inheritance in one way. In one sense, he technically owns everything. It's all going to be his. But right now he's under a guardian. Right now he's not totally free until his father steps in and says, okay, you're, you're free now. You're, you're an adult uh, child. Paul is saying that the law, the era of the law before Christ was like this. It was a guardian and a teacher, but it wasn't permanent. Like the idea is not that you always live under this guardian, but the guardian is pointing you forward. It's trying to take you forward to a new era, a new thing, something much, much Better. So the point here is that the era of the law was never the goal. The Old Testament times and everything wrapped up into those times wasn't the ultimate goal. That it, it was never supposed to stay there. The Old Testament was pointing forward. That whole era and all the ceremonial laws especially, right, were pointing forward to a new era. And worse, worse, the, that era... And the giving of the law was actually being completely twisted and perverted. Because God never gave his law. He didn't give the Ten Commandments thinking, oh, you'll follow this and save yourself. But that's what he was being turned into. Oh, if we just follow the law, if we can just do the law, we will finally get acceptance with God. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. That whole era was pointing forward to a new and better era. And the law, oh, the law was not given to save you. The law was given to show you that you need salvation from someone else. It was always pointing forward to something much better. And then Paul applies it to you and me. To you and me, he says this in verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles 
of the world. We were enslaved. In other words, when we live as though if we do this and if we do that and if we say this and we don't say that, then I will find acceptance with God. Paul says that, the Bible says that is slavery. It's anything but freedom. It is, it is being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world under the law. Living under the law is striving and working with everything in you to finally get acceptance with God. And so you perform and you perform in order to earn, to finally feel confident before God, to feel assured before God. And until then, you're always uncertain. You're always unsure. You're, you're a slave to uncertainty. You're a slave to being unsure. No confidence fear before God. So if you are skeptical of God's love, wherever you're skeptical of God's love, wherever you're unsure, wherever you, you're kind of scared, uncertain, it's because there you're under the law. You are thinking, I need to do this or not do this or say that or don't say this or feel this certain way or whatever it might be in order to finally get assurance before God to know that he loves me. It's there in that skepticism, there in that performance-driven, earning-driven way of life that you and I put ourselves under the law. We feel enslaved, not adopted. We feel like a slave, not a son, not a daughter. We might feel like legally in Christ, yes, we're a part of the family, but we don't call God our father. That's that's a little too intimate. I'm not so sure that he's, he's down for that. So that's what's going on in Galatia as some background. That's what's going on in your heart and my heart on a daily basis, this skepticism of God's love. I probably need to perform in order to feel confident before God. And then Paul comes in like with good news, um, good news that, that's borderline uncomfortable. Look what he says in verse four. He says, but... But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of time had come, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, the son of God, the eternal son of God, the only true son of God, the only natural, worthy, righteous, fully accepted son of God was sent for you and me. And he was born of woman. He didn't just descend out of heaven. He took on your flesh totally and fully as a little baby in the womb and then born and was a little baby and then grew up into a toddler, etc. and on and on made like you and me in every single way as a human. And he was born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. So Jesus comes, takes on our flesh, lives under the law, the very, our very problem, that we don't fulfill the law. The law can never give us acceptance with God. We can never prove ourselves. We can never perform enough to find acceptance with God. Jesus lives under that law for us. We can't do it, and the Son of God says, I got this. I got this. I will take on your humanity, your flesh, and I will live under the law, and I will fulfill the law in absolute 
perfection, and then I will redeem you. I will pay the price for you. What was the price he paid to redeem you and me? It was the, the price of the curse of the law. The curse of the law was that if you don't fulfill the law perfectly, you're cursed. You are cursed by God. And Jesus goes to the cross as a sinless man, someone who has perfectly fulfilled the law, does not deserve the curse of God, does not need mercy from God because he has no sin, but then he goes there to redeem you and me, to pay the price for your sin and my sin. And Galatians before chapter four says that he took the curse of the law, the curse that you and I deserve. He took it for us to redeem us. Why? Why did he do this? Look at the end of verse five, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Not just redeemed in the sense that not just your slate is wiped clean. As amazing as that is and as true as that is, it's not just your slate is wiped clean, all of your sins are forgiven, and now you're going to live in uncertainty and fear that you might tarnish your record and go back to that place of being guilty before God. No, no, no. Redeemed includes you are redeemed so that we might receive adoption. Redeemed, forgiven, slate wiped clean, and then given the record of the Son of God, of his righteousness, of his holiness, adopted as sons of God, where the Bible now says that Jesus is our brother. Redeemed to be adopted. So then look at the conclusion in verse 7. Verse 7, so you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Um, the good news is that the Son of God lived under the law alone so that you and I could live under grace alone. This is what has been done for you, outside of you, objectively. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has nothing to do with what's done in you. It's just done outside of you, for you, and then given to you as a free gift by the grace of God. Now, we believe this as Christians, but um, you and I both know that, man, what a struggle it is to live in this. And by that, I mean to, to let it be the, the, the taste on our lips, the, the, the palpable sense that this is true of us. What a struggle. What a struggle. Yeah, we believe it. We, yes, Jesus died for us. Yes, we're adopted. But how often on a daily basis do we struggle to really live like it, to really sense it, to really deep down in our bones feel it palpably? Martin Luther said this, to doubt the goodwill of God is an inborn suspicion of God within all of us. Man, we struggle, don't we? We struggle, we doubt, we're skeptical, even as Christians. Yes, we're adopted. Um, we know that we're legally welcome because of the blood of Jesus. But, but do we sense it so deeply in our bones that we come before God with confidence and say, Father, I know you hear me. What a struggle it can be. And so Paul knows that this is our struggle. God knows that this is our struggle in our doubts and our fears and our sins. And so he begins to say that God takes this objective reality, this objective thing that's happened for you. Jesus has died for you and risen for you and adopted you. And God is in the business of driving it deep into your heart. Look at verse 6. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Notice this, he says, because you are sons. In other words, whatever we're about to look at, this personal experience that Paul is talking about, it's because you're sons. You're not a son or a daughter of God because you had an experience or because of something done in you. You're already a son of God. You're already a daughter of God because of Jesus and his death for you, his life is for you, his death for you, and his resurrection for you. So because you are sons, because you've been justified and accepted through faith alone, God has now sent the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father, how adopted are you? How welcome are you? How loved are you by the Father? So much so that he's given the very spirit of his son to you. The same spirit that Jesus had given to you. It's unbelievable. And what does the spirit do? What does he do? He cries out, Abba, Father. Now, um, in Romans 8, Paul says something very similar, only he says we cry out, Abba, Father, by the spirit. So, The Spirit cries out, and it moves you and me to cry out, Abba, Father. What does Abba mean? What what, what is this word? What does this mean? It's an Aramaic word. Now, this is interesting because Paul uses an Aramaic word to Greek-speaking people. Why would he just randomly throw in an Aramaic word to a people that, by and large, speak Greek? Well, it's because he is directly referring to and connecting to um, how Jesus prayed to the Father. Jesus prayed to the Father. Abba, Father. So this is astounding. This is astounding because what this is saying is that the Holy Spirit leads you and me to relate to God the Father as Jesus relates to God the Father. How confident is Jesus before the Father? How welcome is Jesus before the Father? How loved is Jesus before the Father? How certain is Jesus before the Father? How assured is Jesus before the Father regarding his acceptance with the Father, regarding the Father's love for him and welcome for him? This is saying you can and should have that kind of confidence. You can and should relate to the Father as Jesus does. It's absolutely astounding. The confidence that Jesus has before the Father, you should have because you come not in your own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus. That's how loved you are in Christ. Jesus is so confident and so assured with the Father that he, he prays, Abba, Father. Now, what do these terms mean? There's all sorts of thoughts and, and, and debates, and it's fairly simple. Um, Abba, this is a term of, of respect, um, and it's also a term of, of amazing intimacy. So, so putting it in our language, what is Abba? How do we translate that um, to, to our language? I think the best way to understand it, it's not, it's not like a baby saying dada, right? Because they quickly move on from that to what I think is the better term to understand Abba, and it's daddy. Now, here's why I say, I say daddy, and I say this with, with many uh, other people much smarter than me and commentators and scholars. Um, uh, daddy, uh, th- think, of a, think of an older southern gentleman 
who's a fully grown, independent, free man. And how, how does he relate? How does he talk about his dad? Oh, my daddy. Man, my daddy's my hero. I love my daddy, right? I mean, daddy is not just baby talk, is it? I mean, you can be a, a grown man and still think so intimately about your father. Great respect, great honor, and yet great intimacy to call him daddy. There's only one person in our lives that has this title, right? This is such a unique, special way to talk to someone. Not just anyone is dad. Not just anyone is daddy. This is a unique, special relationship in our lives. I mean, this is why when our kids learn our first name, you know, and your kid calls you by your first name, you're like, whoa, you know, you're like immediately kind of insulted, offended. You're not sure what to think, you know, because really deep down what's going on is you're like, no, 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 you don't, you don't call me Colin or by my first name. Like that's how my friends address me. You don't, that's not how you talk to me. No, no, I'm dad. I'm daddy. Our relationship is unlike any relationship on the planet. Unbelievable respect as dad and unbelievable nearness and intimacy. So what does this mean? It means um, we don't, you don't cry Abba Father to just, to someone who, who's a stranger, to someone who's distant, to someone who's cold, to someone you're not confident with, to someone you're not certain with. You cry Abba Father, you cry Dad or even Daddy uh, to someone that you have unbelievable confidence with, unbelievable nearness with, unbelievable intimacy and closeness and welcome and love and care with. That's how the Spirit leads you to relate to uh, the Father, not just someone who says, that person adopted me, but that's my dad, right? And notice this, that the Spirit cries, Abba, Father, this cry is a, it's a deep, profound cry. It's exactly how kids, especially little, little kids talk to their, talk to their dad, right? Like my little kids, um, they could be in another room. They don't even necessarily know if I'm home. And what do they do? They just will cry out, dad, dad, right? They just cry out this spontaneous, I need you. I'm dependent on you. I'm trusting you. Come help. You know, come help me put together this Lego set, whatever it might be. A cry like this, a cry of Abba Father, it's not this scripted, formal, put together thing, right? It's this often spontaneous cry to our Father. You know, I mean, our kids, if you have kids, you know that honestly, if, if they're saying something scripted to you, it might be because they're in trouble. You know, like I got to say this just right, you know, dad. I'm sorry for what I've done. You know, it's like this scripted thing because they're in trouble. But when they're comfortable, when they know you love them and you're there for them and you want to care for them, man, it's just spontaneous. Sometimes they cry out and they don't even know what they're going to say. I mean, that's what this is saying here. We cry, Abba, Father. Our prayers oftentimes are these spontaneous prayers, sometimes coming from such deep pain and anguish that, that we don't even know what to pray. We just start praying, Father, I need you. I don't even, I don't have the words. I'm trying to find the words as I go, but I just don't really have them, but I just know I need you. It's deep and it's profound crying out for, for our father. Luke Combs, uh, country artist, 
um, who's blown up in the past couple years, has a, a song. It's one of my all-time favorite songs. Um, it is it's powerful, and it's about the relationship of a father with his son. And um, it's written from the perspective of a son moving through a son growing up from when he's a little boy uh, to when he's a, a young man, um, early 20s, to when he's, he's grown. And I just want to read some of this song because I think it's a, a perfect illustration of this whole idea that the Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. Begins with the child. He's a little child, and he says, Daddy, I'm afraid. Won't you stay a little while? Keep me safe, because there's monsters right outside. It's a little boy, you know, in his little toddler bed or his cribs, and hey, don't go. There's monsters right outside. Keep me safe. He says, Daddy, please don't go. I don't want to be alone. And his dad, his daddy responds. He says, hey, just because I'm leaving, is a country song, it don't mean that I won't be right by your side. It says, even though I'm leaving, I ain't going nowhere. Right, like a good dad assuring his son, I love you and I'll protect you and I'll keep you safe. Don't worry. Don't worry. Even though I'm leaving, I'm not going anywhere, buddy. Now the son grows up and he's enlisted in the military and he's going off to war. And now, as someone in their 20s would do, he addresses dad as, his daddy as dad. But he, he shows that he's still a son who just so needs his father's care. And he says this, Dad, he's about to go off to war. I know I act tough, but there's a churning in my gut. Because I know when I'm off at war, I just can't call you up when things get rough. I just want to be a, a child with you that, that calls out Abba Father when I need you. But I know I'm going off to war and I'm not going to be able to do that. And it's scary. And so his dad, like a good dad, says, hey, just because you're leaving, it don't mean that I won't be right by your side. Right? Trying to give his son assurance and confidence and certainty. I love you, buddy. I love you. Now, the son is grown up. This is the last stage of the song. The son is all grown up. And his dad is dying. And look how the song, again, I think a perfect illustration of, of what we see in Galatians 4. Look how he addresses his dad. He's a grown man and he says, Daddy. Daddy, I'm afraid. Won't you stay a little while? I never thought I'd see the day that I had to say goodbye. A grown man with his grown father saying, Daddy, don't go yet. I just want to be with you. And his dad says, even though I'm leaving, I ain't going nowhere. He's trying to give his son assurance and confidence. I love you, buddy. I love you. I think this is an incredible picture of our adoption with God. And when I said that this good news is almost uncomfortable, you might think, I'm not here calling you to start addressing God as daddy. But what I am saying is that we have to get this picture. We have to understand what Galatians is here saying. And it is calling you to relate to the Father as Jesus related to the Father and Jesus related to the Father in the most intimate of ways, in the most intimate of terms regarding the father and who the father is and who he was as his son and now in Christ who you are as his son or as his daughter accepted by the father as Jesus is accepted. You can have the same assurance, the same certainty that the son of God has right now with the father in his presence. So don't be skeptical of his love. Don't be 
skeptical of the Father's love for you. He sent his son for you to adopt you. And then he sent his spirit into the depths of your being to make it real to you. And he knows that you still are skeptical. He knows that you doubt. He knows that you fear. And so he's going to continue to cry out within you, Abba, Father. So we might say, um, I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid, God. I know I act tough, but I'm just not tough. <laughs> Where are you? Where are you, Father? I need you. I don't even know how to pray to you right now. I just know I need you. And he's going to say, I'm right here. I'm right here with you. Amen.